Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. About that screw up, I, you know, at my age, I just cannot discipline myself to look at the fucking calendar in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know if that's an age thing. <laughs> uh, you know, you're not. You're not. You're not old yet, Alan. You got to still got a ways to go. Alan, are you? Where are you right now, Crow? Are you in Albuquerque right now, or where are you at? Yeah, I'm in Albuquerque right now. Okay. You know, I, I lived in Corrales a second. Sorry, sorry, not Albuquerque. I'm in. Did you see the problem? I'm in Stewart, Florida. <laughs> ah, okay. I was going to say because I from Albuquerque. We moved from Albuquerque to to Florida, and I'm about to go back to Zimbabwe because I spent half the year there. I mm-hmm. see. Okay, so, um, you know, most people that I'm aware of kind of sort of learned about you through a TED talk you gave, uh, yeah. which is very powerful, very moving, and you know, I saw that and was very impressed with that as well. Just you know, many, many, many people have been trying to get us to come on your show. Now, you originally were from Rhodesia because back when you were there, it was still called Rhodesia. Yeah. <laughs> and it's been, you know, it's been changed to Zimbabwe since that time. I'm, I'm actually, uh, my mother's South African. So I, I, I kind of spent time in that part of the world and know kind of some of the stuff, you know, where you're from. But let me ask you just, you know, because I want to get into some of the details, but let's talk about the problem of desertification of the world. And, and, and you claim that, that that is probably one of the major pressing issues facing us now. Can you kind of walk us through why that's occurring, why it's such a problem, and then we can talk about some of the solutions. Okay. Um, desertification, that's just the man-made, caused by human uh, deserts. And I once listened to a, a speaker uh, she was brilliant. She showed a picture of the uh, our planet from space with a space shot out there. And she just made the statement that if somebody had been observing our planet from space for the last few thousand years, they would describe humans as a desert-making species. That's the biggest impact you could see from space if we had had satellites out there for thousands of years. Uh, It's just enormous. Virtually that area I showed from the NASA shot in uh, in the TED Talk, it's anywhere that the rainfall is seasonal that is in danger of turning to desert. The humid areas of the world don't turn into desert. The oceans don't. The lakes basically don't. The rivers don't. The tropical, wet, humid forests don't. The east and west coasts of America don't. Uh, Florida is not turning into a desert, neither is England or France and so on. But the first deserts is forming in in Europe now and in parts of Spain and so on. So it's where the rainfall is seasonal. And I did explain that pretty exhaustively in the TED talk. And basically why it happens is because because of our management, that's all that causes it, there's nothing else. 
But in our management, we, through our actions, we make the available rainfall less effective. Now that can happen in any environment, but in the seasonal rainfall, whether it's a hundred inches of rain or it's two inches of rain, it's in the seasonal rainfall that it's, it turns to desert or tends to, to do so. Now, the effective rainfall just means the rain that you get falls, soaks into the soil, and then it doesn't leave the soil except one of two ways. It leaves the soil by going out through plants, transpiration, we call it, or it leaves the soil by flowing through the soil to underground reservoirs, aquifers and so on, or to river flow. And if it doesn't go either of those routes, it stays in the soil. And the soil is the biggest reservoir of fresh water on our planet, bigger than all the lakes, rivers, and everything combined, uh, is the soil as a reservoir. Other than that, uh, you've got icebergs, you know, but uh, essentially the soil is the real big story. Now, non-effective rainfall, which we've got over most of the United States and much of the world, is why you get floods and droughts getting worse and worse and worse. That just means through our management, the rain that falls on the land tends to immediately leave it by running across the surface. And it carries soil with it, floods, carries vehicles, landslides, everything starts moving. Um, Or it soaks into the soil and then turns around and leaves the soil again in subsequent days through the bare surface of the soil because the sun is shining on the soil, dries the top layers, and the soil virtually sucks up moisture which is passing out to the air. And that's why droughts become much, much more severe, floods become much more uh, frequent and severe, and the genuine droughts and the genuine floods, which are fairly rare, become 10 times worse. And that's essentially what you see in California and all over the place, yeah. Alan, how is that, you know, you said over several thousand years, what, what is our rate of, you know, desertification occurring? Is it accelerating? Um, you know, uh, is it just been since we've been farming? You know, I, I know this has to do with the way we practice agriculture, but how is that? How is it, began, that over time? it began years ago. For example, it began in, in Australia about 50, 60,000 years ago, and Aborigines were never farming. It had nothing to do with farming. It, what really happens is if you look at the perennially humid areas, east and west coast, as I said, tropical forests, etc., you, you find the main herbivores, the main creatures that eat plants are insects. And so you find a few deer, a few akapi, whatever, and then you find predators preying on them, the odd tiger, leopard, jaguar, etc., but you don't get packs of tigers, you don't get packs of leopards, you don't get packs of jaguars. That's because they don't eat insects. There isn't enough food for them to get into packs. Now, if you look at the seasonal rainfall environments of the world, that's where you've got all the large mammals, thousands of millions and millions of large animals, and they had those large predators, including pack-hunting predators, wolves, hyenas, lions, uh, etc., you know, wild dogs of Africa. And um, 
And again, that I explained in the TED talk. So what the early humans did was on every continent was the same thing. We basically wiped out nearly all that large animal life. Once we got fire and spear and organization, mostly our ability to organize, which don't forget, we were not a predator. We were an omnivorous scavenger that learned how to prey on animals when we got our big brain, our organization, spear, fire, etc. And once we had those, we actually could kill whole herds more easily than we could kill one animal. You couldn't kill one buffalo, for example, with a simple spear easily. But if you could surround a herd of buffalo with a fire, you could kill many. Or if you could drive them over a cliff, or you could drive them into boggy ground, etc. So we began literally killing whole herds more easily than one animal. And there are uh, killing sites, apparently, that archaeologists have found, you know, with a few, with thousands of animals killed and very few eaten, buffalo sites, etc. I, I did read once of one in New Zealand, I think it was, they said something like 90,000 mowers killed and very few eaten. And so what happened was where no human, no animal had ever known how to light a fire. We didn't know either. We learned how to use a fire, which some birds have now learned to do, but we didn't know how to make a fire. And then once we could make fire as well, I think that's when it really got going because we really replaced the role in these major environments of the world that was played by millions of large herbivores with moist gut. Because when the land went dry for six or eight months of the year or more, the moisture was in the gut of the animal and it could keep, they could keep digesting and breaking down the grass biologically and dung and urine keeping the, the nutrients cycling. And once the animals were gone and there was nothing to cycle that mass of dead grass that humans can't digest, uh, can't really make any use of except to thatch their houses as we do. Once there was that, those animals were gone, then people began replacing their role by burning it. Now, again, as I explained in the TED talk, when the animals have gone, if you don't burn it, that mass of grass actually turns to chemical breakdown, oxidation. Now, why no scientists ever discovered this before I did? Goodness knows. They just didn't ask the wrong, right questions. They just weren't determined enough to try to solve the problem, I guess. So in answer to your question, desertification, and thus by implication, uh, climate uh, instability caused by humans began thousands of years ago. And so for in North America, it is important to remember that where we've got apparently about 10 large mammal species in North America today, there used to be 40 more species. Now, people have no idea of that. So, Alan, if I can just try to kind of sum up what you just said, it sounds to me like essentially what we did is we removed a piece to the puzzle and then tried placing a puzzle piece that doesn't quite fit, which is kind of humans into that equation. Uh, is that more or less kind of what was happening? Yes, that, that is more or less what was happening. And we then, when the land began deteriorating and desert, desertifying, 
and that again began thousands of years ago. I'm not a, uh, you know, don't not a student of ancient ancient history, but I've heard from people who read Hebrew and so on that there are ancient Hebrew texts. I'm told in which you can see that they were blaming the the nomads for causing the desert with their sheep and too many sheep, etc. And that has been a, a human obsession, really, that number of animals cause the degradation. And that, that became a belief so deep that it is the basis of range science. And it's not science. It's only a belief. Alan, there, you know, what you say echoes something that uh, Professor Felisa Smith from the University of New Mexico, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her since, you know, out in Albuquerque, but she, I guess she did a study where she basically looked at, you know, the, the size of the modern terrestrial mammal, you know, and averaged all the animals up and said the biomass of an average animal today is about 10 kilos. And mm -hmm. something like 50,000 years ago, we were looking at something like 500 kilograms of an average size animal, which goes to, you know, because we talk about this great megafaunal extinction and, and, you know, we had just roving herds of mastodon and, and mammoth and, you know, the, the woolly rhinoceros and, you know, all the, the, the camels and all these giant animals that roamed North America, South America, all throughout Europe. And, and clearly we, they were destroyed uh, likely by human predation, or at least we contributed to much of that. And so by having those animals, what would you, do you have any idea? I know like if we look at today, you know, if we look at the numbers today, I mean, uh, Domestic cattle represent about 1.4 million, you know, animal 1.4 billion creature animals. Uh, we've got several million wild ruminants still running through the plains of Africa and, and other areas. But what are we looking at in a difference in the number of animals? Would you estimate, or is there any? Do you have any evidence to indicate how many animals there were running around, say, 100,000 years ago? Relative, no, I, I can't. And anybody who says they've got an estimate is, is uh, it's BS. I mean, how the hell do you work that out now? All I know is that there were millions of animals. Now, how do I know that? Because all the large herding herbivores, which is what the bulk of these were and still are, like if you go to the plains of Serengeti or the Caribou or anything, all large herding herbivores you'll find are severe grazers. They graze severely. They cannot nibble a plant. They bite the plant severely. They are not self-organizing populations. They breed and breed and breed and breed and breed, and nothing limits their numbers except accident, disease, or predation. Starvation can, in a few instances, but generally, if they, before they get to starving, the disease or predators get them. Okay? So when you had large herds of herbivores that could not control their numbers and just bred and bred and bred and were only limited by accident, disease, or predation, it's impossible for there not to have been billions of animals. People just need to go back to basic principle. Now, there are herbivores that don't graze severely, but somehow they limit their own population, and we don't know how. I'm talking of things like dica in Africa, Arabi, Stembuck, Kreisbuck, etc. Uh, we tried years ago in Rhodesia and Tsetse fly operations and things to shoot them out. We couldn't shoot them out. 
No matter how much we shot, they're just bred and replaced. And if we protected them totally, the numbers didn't change. They just stopped breeding. Interesting. You know what? This is another thing because we hear a lot about climate change and we talk about uh, fossil fuels. Uh, we talk about methane production from animals. Um, how do you see that as being a driver of climate instability versus or in addition to or instead of uh, the, the, you know, the formation of the deserts? What do you, how, how do you see the interplay between those, those sort of philosophies well, and the theories? The, the formation of the deserts and climate instability is one and the same thing. If, if we'd never heard of uh, fossil resources, never burnt them, the climate still would have changed. And that I mentioned in the TED talk. I said, if you just bear one square meter of ground, I promise you it's hotter at midday and it's colder at dawn. You've changed the microclimate. By the time you've done that over whole continents on billions of hectares, you've, you're changing climate. It's impossible not to. So, you know, this endless debate of whether we're changing the climate or not is just ignorance. Of course we're changing it. You, you cannot not change it. And yet, and the climatologists, I hardly ever hear them talking about desertification. They just focus on fossil fuels, it seems. Now, the, when we look at methane that cattle put out and where the soils can absorb carbon, uh, the big vegan diet debate that's on, this is all just to use the old cliche, fiddling while Rome burns or rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. This is nothing but just mass ignorance, which is endangering us. Now, why do I say that? Because it's just logical. Sean, if you're going to deal with any problem, it's, I'm just going to go to basic logic that every one of your listeners understands. If you've got a basic problem, you need to deal with the cause of the problem, not the symptoms. So if I am hitting you on the head, you'll get a headache. If I'm hitting you on the head with a hammer, it's no good you treating the headache as the problem because it isn't the problem. So if you take aspirin and disprin and codeine, you're never going to heal the headache and you're going to get all sorts of other ailments as those take effect in your body. That's what's happening globally. Now, the logic says, hang on, my headache isn't a problem. It's a symptom of... Alan hitting me on the head. If I just stop that, the headache will go. All right, so if we accept that simple logic, what we need to look at is what is causing both desertification and climate change. And if you ask our top scientists and society generally, you will get the answer that livestock is causing it and coal and oil. Now, if you use your sense, your common sense, you will say, hang on, livestock are a resource. We're going to need them for centuries to come to feed people, to provide wool, leather, etc. cetera. Uh, coal and oil are fossil resources with large carbon molecules. We can make many, many products out of that uh, to serve humanity for centuries to come. So there's no way that livestock, coal and oil are the cause of desertification and climate change. That's just a lack of common sense, right up to Nobel laureate level. It's all of us, we're all involved in that. Now, if they are not the cause, what is? And what is causing it is simply management. It is management 
that has handled livestock for over 10,000 years in a way that led to desertification and biodiversity loss, even in Europe and so on. Even in the humid environments, it leads to biodiversity loss and degradation, and it leads to desertification in the seasonal rainfall. It is management that called fossil resources, coal and oil, fossil fuels to be burnt at a rapid rate. So it is without a shadow of doubt, a hundred percent certain that management is the cause of desertification and climate change. Now, how many people in the world are saying that? Well, at least you and a few others I'm aware of, but let me ask you, Alan, when you talk about management, so let me get an idea of, because you're talking about, I assume domestic cattle and, and you know, other domestic animals that we use for food. Um, how, how, how many, how, what percentage of the world's cattle are managed in your view appropriately? I mean, we've got, like I said, we got 1.4 billion cows on the earth. What percentage are actually being managed correctly? Probably less than 1%. And how would you... All of those are being managed in a way that is causing problems. A lot of them are in factory feedlot settings where they're causing environmental degradation, degradation to our health, they're just damaging economies. That should be illegal in any sane society. And then those that are out on the land, they're all being handled with rotational grazing, mob grazing, uh, various grazing rotations, grazing systems. And as I explained in the TED Talk, we knew 50 years ago that all those ways of rotational grazing, mob grazing, the way pastoralists herd the animals, cause desertification or biodiversity loss in the humid environments. And that's why knowing that over 50 years ago, when I realized we had no option but to use livestock to replace that animal mass of the past, my big dilemma was how the hell to do so. Nobody in the world knew how to do it because every way we've ever run livestock caused the problem. So in answer to your 1.4 billion livestock, I'm afraid nearly all of them are causing the problem still. There's a very few people who are using the process that we developed. So with the livestock, what was wrong in the management was that we were using, uh, it, it was typical of all management, it was too simplistic. We were not able to address the complexity. So we were doing through these various rotational grazing, mob grazing, etc., which really is our simple way of using what we think is common sense, etc., and avoiding the complexity. And Voisin, the French pastoralist, was the first to discover that that was wrong and we needed some sort of planning process. So I, rather than reinvent the wheel, when I realized we had to use livestock, I just took Andre Voisin's work and I said, this Frenchman has solved this. Let me try that. And I did that in Africa on, on clients, lands, etc. And we fell on our faces. Uh, Africa was more complex than pastures in France. But thankfully, I realized, hang on, Roseanne is not wrong. The planning process he's developed is not able to deal with the full complexity we have here. The man is right. All we need to do is to refine that planning process. So then I thought, well, what professions in the world have ever 
dealt with very complicated situations in management. And I looked at business planning, Harvard, all the different techniques, and I just logically uh, took the military because armies of Europe for 300 years or more had had to plan uh, and train people how to plan very quickly in times of war in immediate battlefield conditions. So they had to recruit millions of uh, men and women, etc., train them quickly. And I just said, well, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Let me look at how Sandhurst, I took the British military experience, how they've done this. And we were using the same planning in the Rhodesian army. So it was easy for me to do. And, and I just took our immediate battlefield planning procedures and how did we do them? And I said, I'm not, there it is. They've solved this problem. And the only thing I had to do was recognize that armies had solved the problem for short term. Battles are fought for an hour or half an hour or a day or a week. They're not, they're not fought for years at a time where pastoralists and farmers and ranchers have to plan for a year ahead in dry areas Sometimes we have to plan nearly two years ahead. So I had to think, all right, if the military planning procedure is right, all I have to do is work out how to do it over a prolonged time. And I just did that by always doing it on a paper chart. Because on a paper chart, you can express four dimensions of one flat piece of paper. You can express time right across the whole thing as we do with the calendar. And so the Planning is, uh, I, I never take credit for it. I always credit Sandhurst uh, because that's where I took it from. And uh, from the day I first did that in the night, or oh, no, that would have been about the late 60s, I think when I did that, from the very first ranch that I planned, Colin Bickles Ranch near Bulawayo, we've never looked back. We've never yet had that planning process fail us. Alan, when you talk about, because what I hear about rotational grazing or mob grazing, you know, they, 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 they bring the animals in for a short period of time, two, three days, they allow them to graze, and then they move them over to a, sec a different section of pasture. And you're saying that, that even that is not correct, there's something else they need to be doing? Or how does... Yeah. How yeah. does how, what? We've been doing that for centuries. For 10,000 years, pastoralists have been running their herd in a mob, and they've been moving them onto a different pasture. They've been doing that for 10,000 years. It caused the great deserts of antiquity. So how, how do you do it then? What is, it, what, what, is the what is the method that you're going to use that people can adopt? That well, you have to have, you have to have, you, it's, it's whether you're dealing with, with this that we're talking of, or a drug policy for America, or a, a weed policy, or any policy, or any management, you cannot reduce the web of complexity to oversimplification. So when you're dealing with livestock on the ground in this case, and you're going to use the animals as a tool, you have to account for the social and cultural complexity. You have to account for, for what's happening in that society, that culture. You have to account for the economics of it. At the end of the day, the economy, money, is what makes the oil go, the cogs go round. All right, you have to account for the environmental complexity. So I take, when I'm training ranchers, I'll take a very simple ranch and I'll have a map of it. And I'll just say, you've got water in these areas, you've got grass in these, you've got 10 different uh, fenced areas, paddocks, you've got wildlife nesting here at certain times of the year, you've got uh, deer and something fawning over here, 
Uh, you've got crops growing in these fields in some of those things. You've got people going on leave. You've got people happening. These things are happening in your market. This is what your neighbor is doing. This is when he's got bulls close to your fence. I just give them a few problems that are just absolutely normal. And then I say, now use a pencil, use paper, use a, a calendar, and just plan how you're going to move your animals to not overgraze plants, keep your animals crowded, and step through that minefield of issues. And, uh, and I let them go at it, and they just end in a mess. They can't do it. And then I say, okay, now drop that. Forget trying to plan on a calendar, plan on a piece of paper, plan in your head as you're doing. Let me just take that exact same scenario and teach you how to use a military aid memoir so that one step builds on another and we bring every factor out of your head onto that paper and they do it together and in half an hour you can see exactly where the animals need to go. You've got them in the right place, the right time, right reason, right behavior. It's terribly simple to do. What is the, you know, because this is about preventing deserts and I assume protecting the, the soils and the, and the, and the you know, the, the foliage, effectively, what is the goal? I mean, what is the goal? You know, we've, got to, we've obviously got to feed the animals, keep them healthy and so on and so forth. But what is the goal? What are, we, what are you trying to do with the, with the ground? I mean, what, what is, you know, what are we trying to can I Can I take you from there to a different level? Because it's not about animals. Sure. It's about management. Do you remember we said, what is causing global desertification and climate change? And I said, it's management. That's what we need to do. These animals that we're talking about are only a tool. So if we spend our time talking about a tool, at the end of the day, we won't help anybody. Okay, so if we look at management and what is wrong in management, let me take tools, because I started there. We're a tool-using animal. So to improve our lives, which is what we do with management, that's the reason we manage, to try to improve our lives, we're going to have to use a tool. All the creativity in the world can't do anything. All the money in the world can't do anything. All the labor in the world can't even turn a tree into furniture until I pick up an ax. You and I, and all the people listening to us, cannot even drink water now without technology unless they go to the nearest river and drink with their hands and mouth. So we cannot even drink water today without technology. All right, so if we're going to manage, let's say, some land somewhere, we, at the end of the day, we're going to have to pick up a tool. Now, what tools are available to humans? I got criticized for, in the TED Talk because I said we have no option but livestock to reverse desertification and seriously address climate change, all right? Now, why did I say that? Because all scientists and humans believe we've got thousands of options, endless things we can do. No, we don't. We have technology. Now, our first technology was sticks and stones, and we couldn't change the environment. So for a million years or more, we could not change the environment with our technology any more than an otter or a crow or an ape can do. But we were a tool-using animal. Then we got our second tool, and that was fire. Once we got fire, we began to change the world, as we said. 
but we also found we could melt the stones. So instead of just chipping the stones and sharpening them, we could now melt them and go into the copper, the bronze, and the iron age. And everything in that room, in the picture I'm looking at you now, and the room behind you, and the clothing you've got on you, everything there was made possible by fire. Nothing could have been done without fire. So once we had our second tool, our technology could advance to even using the computers to talk as we are now, and we could explore space and put a man on the moon. All right? That is the tool of technology, chemistry, chemicals, machinery, everything we've got. Now, no technology in the world can replace biological decay in the trillions of tons of vegetation on two-thirds of the world's land. All right? Nothing can do that except a biological process which used to be in the gut of large animals, right? So technology will never solve that problem. That's beyond imagination even. Now, fire is rapid oxidation and it causes the problem. So of the two tools humans have had for 99.99% of human existence, it was impossible to prevent climate changing and desertification occurring. Now, the only other tool that humans have thought of in the last 10,000 years than those two is to rest the land or let it recover. And this would have begun with early pastoralists moving their livestock or early crop farmers rotating their crops to try to let the soil things. And now it's the conservation movement, national parks, etc. All right, so now we have three tools. Now, with those three tools, two of them cause desertification. Conservation or rest causes desertification in the brittle environments, seasonal rainfall environments, which is most of the world's land. And it's a powerful tool where it's humid. That's why you find old ruins of civilization where it was humid, you find them under the vegetation. Where it was seasonal rainfall, you find them under desert sand. Right, so we've got three tools available to every scientist in the world. Two of them cause desertification and one can't solve it. You see why I said we have no option. Now, the only other thing that we have thought about is the idea of using technology to plant trees. Just like I said, you've got to use technology to drink water. You can't plant a tree without technology. It just can't be done. You have to pick up a stick or some tool. And so we thought of the idea of planting trees, and we're not the first to do it. Today, we, in fact, we gave a Nobel Prize to a woman for very wonderful work she did mobilizing villages in Kenya to plant trees. That's because we believe in that. But it's no hope of solving the problem because you've got to have at least probably around about 400 millimeters, 500 millimeters of rain for trees to be able to give you solid tree co uh, soil cover. And most of the world's desertifying land, or much of it, is 200 millimeters or, or less of rain. All right, so we've got three tools and one combination of tools, and nothing else has ever come up from humans that we're aware of. So you see why I said no option but to change the management and accept the idea of using livestock, not just to feed ourselves, produce leather or anything, but as a tool to attack desertification and climate change. 
So as I often say to people, when we debate methane and how much carbon soil can avoid and whether people should be vegan or not, this is all wasting time. Because if I make the assumption that cattle put out a hundred times the methane they do, it's not true, but let's assume it. If I assume that the world's soils, agricultural soils could absorb no carbon, it's, it's totally untrue, but let's assume it. And if I assume that every human said we're never going to eat animals again, and so we all became vegan, I would say to the world scientists, now what are you going to do about climate change and desertification? You have no option. You still have to get all those animals out of those feedlots, back on the land. You have to breed them up into it so that you have millions more animals because there aren't too many animals on the land. There are too few. And I, I just really, you, you know, you probably sense in my voice how frantic I get because I've been saying essentially the same thing for half a century. And I've had lots of people ridiculed and abused and I've never had a single scientist tell me where the logic or the science is wrong. Alan, when you talk about needing more animals on the land, and, I'm not, and I don't disagree with you at all. I, you know, I think we have a lot of available land that, you know, I don't know what it would support. I mean, you know better than I how many how many animals can safely go per acre. But places like Australia, you know, according to things like the Paris Accord, they want to they want to reduce their cattle population by 30 percent. I mean, that's that, that they've accepted that. That's total stupidity. That's not based on any science. That's based on beliefs. That's that's not a belief that methane is causing climate change, and and, and that animal numbers are the problem. Right. And so, what what do you, you know? If you could magically control all the world's management of these animals, how many animals would you have? Where would you put them? How would you know? How would it, how would how what would that look like? How could can you paint all a right. picture for us? Nobody in the world can tell you that, least of all me. What I can tell you, and I, I tend to just try and stick with simplicity, I understand. Let me just take the ranch that I donated in Zimbabwe. Okay, I donated it to a trust for the benefit of people of Africa and the wildlife, etc. Now, when I bought that ranch, it's near the Victoria Falls, I bought it from an old guy called Vontonda who was going broke and he had a hundred head of cattle. I think he was a very poor manager. I think he probably could have run 200 on that ranch with his management. The land was 90% bare uh, between plants, more than that, in fact, large areas of very bare ground. There were no elephants uh, at all and no buffalo at all because they were cut off by a veterinary fence for foot and mouth disease. All right, so here was a ranch in a very sad situation, the rivers going dry, uh, desertifying, and it had 100 head of cattle. Now today, that ranch, we have run out of bare ground, even for teaching purposes, which is embarrassing. We're preserving some patches of bare ground for the wildlife because they need them for socializing, etc. We are desperately trying to, I wish we could find the money somewhere to get our cattle numbers up to a thousand. We're at 500. And we have done that because we increased from 100 to 500 head of cattle. And now to keep pace with the production of the land, we have to go to 1,000 head of cattle. And today, with the fence, that old fence is down. Some days we can have up to 500 elephants on the place. And some days we can have up to 300 buffalo on the place. 
Other days there may be one or two elephants. Other days there may be 10 buffalo or, or none or 20, right? Because they come and go. But the point I'm making is we have now gone through 12 years, I believe it is, of average to below average rainfall, which anywhere in the world would be a problem. We have not the slightest fear of drought. The land has just got better and better and better every year. In the driest of years, it's still kept improving. Our rivers are beginning to flow again. And here we are running 10 times as much livestock. And we're nowhere near the end. If you come to the ranch today, over half of it is still in poor condition, coming on very slowly, because almost all the soil was destroyed and washed away. So, I, you know, if I, when I look at examples like that, anybody giving you estimates of the amount of livestock that will be needed to stop climate change, it's full of BS. We don't know. All we know is it's far higher than humans can even dream of today. So, Alan, uh, just to kind of summarize a bit, like, so if we're if we're talking about like a United States uh, like cattle operations, your would your first step essentially be we need to increase the herd size and then put them in the right places? Uh, that that would just cause uh, uh, argument. You know, we we are talking about management, and I went to tools, and now mm -hmm. we're back on the tool again. If anybody suggests anything, getting the cattle out of feedlots, getting them on the back land, increasing them, whatever, other people will suggest other things. Then you get into conflict. That is all part of the reductionist management. Reductionist management is what is causing the problem. It also is causing conflict. And so if I said to you, uh, Zach, I'm going to light a fire, should I? Probably not in the house. <laughs> uh, you see, immediately you were cautious because I'm describing a management action and you don't have a context mm. and I burn the place down. The moment you know the context, you can say whether it's wise or not. Mm -hmm. Now, if you say put the cattle out on the land or don't put the cattle on the land or stop fires or burn fires or anything, you start an argument because people don't have a context. So other people will have them. Now, the second part of what is wrong in our management is what we're talking about now. So in our management, we had three tools and no tool that could do the job on, on a major part of the problem. All right. Now, what else was wrong in our management? Everything we make is a success. Right up to space exploration vehicles. Why? Because nothing humans make not the most sophisticated computer or anything, is complex. Nothing humans make is complex. By definition, it's complicated. Everything we make is not self-organizing. It doesn't work if a battery runs out, fuel runs out, a part breaks, it stops. All right? Now, everything we manage is where we're running into trouble, from families to religious organizations to oceans to forests, that's where we're running into trouble. Now, everything that humans manage is complex. It's not complicated, it's complex. That means everything we manage is self-organizing. If a part is missing, it keeps working. If a 10 species get wiped out, the, the world goes on, the planet goes on, it changes. 
but it goes on. If a company, if all of the board of directors die in an accident, the company doesn't fold up. It goes on. A university, a family, anything. All right? So everything we manage is self-organizing and thus defined as complex. Now, if we manage to improve our lives, and we do throw through taking actions, if we have an action and make something, it doesn't lead to immediate complications or conflict or anything else. And often we don't find if there are consequences till far later. Now, when we're managing, we find unintended consequences fairly quickly. Now, the reason is because when, with every action we take, and you think about your own life, uh, Zach or Sean, I will bet, even though I've only met you on, on this uh, podcast now, I'll bet that every step you take in management is to meet a desire or a need. You desire more profit, you desire more of this, more food, uh, or you need more of this or whatever, or it's to solve a problem. So you can take almost every human action and we take that web of social, cultural, environmental, economic complexity and we reduce it to meeting a need, a desire or solving a problem. And if you look at every single government policy of any government or any development project like UN Sustainable Development Goals or anything, in all of those cases, the only reason we develop a policy or develop a, a development project is to solve a problem. So you're taking this web of complexity and reducing it to that. So it's like me lighting my fire with no reason and I could cause complications. So you look at uh, America's drug policy, formed by brilliant people, thousands of them, every awareness that it'll have social consequences, economic consequences, etc. but they reduce that complexity to our kids are taking too many drugs, they come up with a policy, and what happens? Drug use increases, violence spreads across the borders, etc. Take a very simple one, noxious weeds, as they call them, invasive weeds, non-native they call them. We have a policy formed by thousands of people with PhDs, all right? We spend a billion dollars, not a million, a billion every year in the United States, and we haven't killed a single weed species in a single state. We've poisoned the land, poisoned the water, bankrupted the farmers, etc. done enormous damage, and we just keep doing it. We're not stupid. We're not stupid. We didn't know that our management was reductionist. And when um, that group of 2,000 scientists from World Bank, USAID, USDA, were training with me as the government commissioned me to do in the early 80s, we looked at hundreds of American policies. And one of those groups, I cite them in the textbook, and nobody's ever challenged it, they said, we, we now conclude that unsound resource management is universal in the United States. It was incredible to me that after just one week of training, professional people could conclude that about their own policies. And it's not just something we've got a monopoly on here. Every policy in Australia, I'll guarantee you, is unsound. It doesn't matter where you go. I, when I did the same training in India, Twice, Bhubaneswar and Tamil Nadu, same conclusions. When I did the same thing in Lesotho, same conclusions. 
So we need to start paying attention to it. Our management is reductionist. Now, if so, if we're going to deal with the desertification, like your question was in, in, in America, uh, do we need more cattle on the land or anything? Before we talk about that at all, because it would just be reductionist and cause arguments, what you'd have to do is say, well, who's forming this policy? Who's involved? Who are the people really represented? Let's get them together and we develop one overarching context or reason for all policies. It would end up being the same reason for drug policy or the cattle on the land or anything else. And um, so what that would look like, I put out in blogs and so on, because I use a generic one, as people can understand that, seeing the example. And that's just a statement of how we want to be. Let me read one to you. I don't think it'll turn this off, will it, if I go to it? You, you... No, you're fine. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, let me just go quickly to one that I use when I'm just reading the papers or visiting another country. Okay, here's, here it is. Now, you tell me if any humans in America or anywhere else would disagree with this. We want stable families living peaceful lives in prosperity and physical security while free to pursue our own spiritual or religious beliefs. Adequate nutritious food and clean water, enjoying good education and health in balanced lives with time for family, friends and community and leisure for cultural and other pursuits, all to be ensured for many generations to come on a foundation of regenerating soils, ethical and humane consideration for all life and biologically diverse communities on Earth's land and in her rivers, lakes, and oceans. Now, wouldn't almost every sane American agree with that? Sounds yeah. ideal. <laughs> okay, it, it is. Now, we would now say we have a real problem. Most of America is desertifying. How could we solve it? and we'd get ideas and people would advocate as range scientists have that we should use giant machines to mimic animals like the Dixon imprinter. And any idea that comes up, just say good idea. Because if I tell you it's a bad idea, I start conflict. So we just say that's a good idea. And then we take it through seven questions that filter it and see that it is in context, in line with that context, not in line with the problem. And when we did that, we would find that that idea failed the checking. And then we'd say, what other ideas? And somebody would say, well, what about conservation? Why don't we remove the animals completely? Good idea. Now let's check. We'd take it through the seven checks. And so instead of you being told your idea is bad, you learn that it's bad for yourself. You learn it. So you don't start anger and conflict. And we would just keep on and on. And eventually... Somebody would have to say, well, what about livestock? I'd say, okay, what about them? How are you going to manage them? If you're going to manage them with mob grazing, good idea. Now let's take it through the context checks. We'd take it through the context checks and you'd see it's not a good idea. It's going to cause desertification. And we'd keep going. And then one of the ideas we'd look at, what about using a planning process instead of any management system? So we'd look at holistic plan grazing process. And if that passes the seven context checks, then we do it.
Now for a word from our sponsors. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the on the uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store. This is actually a fair bit more economical, and so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and in and, and a very uh, you know enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome, thanks, Sean. Remember to get your discount and free bacon. Type in promo code HPO at the checkout. Now back to the show. Al, what are what what are the seven context checks that you that you're talking about? If, if you know if, if you're they're, they're all in my textbook, and and people think they're the secret, but they're not. The the holistic context is the secret of success. We just look at things uh, like the first one that we'll commonly look at is what we call um, the um, cause and effect. We say, is the problem we're dealing are we dealing with a symptom or are we dealing with the real cause? And it just gets us to think about that. And if we see that we're dealing with a symptom, we don't bother to go further because you know it's going to fail. All right, so that's one check is just make sure you're dealing not with a symptom, but with the real cause of the problem you're facing. And then another one will be a weak link, what we call weak link. The strength of a chain is its weakest link. And we'll just say, okay, let's look at this in three ways. Uh, Weak link social. If we go ahead with this action, will it be so out of kilter with the thinking of our community and everybody in it that we'd start conflict? If so, let's not go ahead with this action until we've educated, trained, and prepared. Because any fool can start a war. They're incredibly difficult to stop. So there's a, a step in here that prevents you going ahead if it would cause conflict until you've solved that. And then the next one of, of those things is if it's a, a problem organism, in other words, it's a rare and endangered species, or it's a parasite that's a real problem, a disease like bizarsia or liver fluke or whatever, so it's a, or it's a noxious plant, as they call it. So if we're dealing with a, an issue that involves a problem organism, either it's dying out and we don't want it to, or it's so prevalent that it's become a problem, then we just ask, is this action dealing with the weakest part in its life cycle? Because if, if we're not dealing with the weakest part in its life cycle, it's going to be like the billion dollars a year we spend on weeds and we never kill them. All right, so we, we'd look at, at that. And if we're not dealing with the weakest point, we don't go further. We start looking into that. And I give examples in the textbook. And then the third in this weak link filter we do is, is every situation, it needs to be economically sound. People need prosperity in their context, as we read out earlier. All right, so in any business, there are only three links in a chain. So from raw resources, human creativity, 
and raw resource of some sort, that's the first link. We create a product, that's the second link. And then that product has to be marketed. And if any one of those links is weak, and you're going to spend $10,000 on the second weakest link, you've just wasted $10,000 in terms of this context we're looking at. So we go through that check to make sure we're constantly addressing the weakest link in it. Uh, in, in it. And m most economists never do that. That's so terribly critical we do. And then you get to next thing is like energy and money. So the next almost every action will involve energy and money coming from somewhere. So we take that and we first look at the energy and we just say in this action we're contemplating what is the source of energy? Is it solar energy? Is it electricity from coal and oil? What is it? Is it fossil fuels? Whatever that source of energy, it's not good or bad, we just acknowledge it. And then we say, in this particular action, what is the pattern of use? Are we using this energy once only consumptively, building no infrastructure? Are we building, are we using it consumptively, but building infrastructure for future, etc.? And just look at that energy and say, yes or no, we're, we're happy with it. And then the same with the money. We're, what is the source of this money? You know, a dollar in your hands looks like a dollar, but it can be a paper dollar coming from just the confidence of humans in the printing of money, this, the share market, etc. That's most money in the world, which can disappear overnight or appear overnight. We need to be aware, is this paper money or not? Or is it what, what we call um, oh, yeah, extractive or mining money? Is it... Is it some resource that we're extracting, like oil, coal, mining, it, etc.? Uh, so we call that a mineral dollar. Is the origin of this money a mineral dollar, or is it a solar dollar? Now, if you look at American agriculture, almost every dollar invested in it is a paper dollar or a mineral dollar. We have chosen, through reductionist management in America and most other countries, I'm not picking on us, uh, we have chosen to treat agriculture as extractive. In other words, we're mining the soil more than we're even mining oil and coal. So every dollar that economists say is contributing to the American economy coming from agriculture, they are wrong. It is undermining America because it's, it's a mineral dollar not regenerating, regenerating soil and, and so on. And then what we're ideally looking for is a solar dollar, meaning it's, that's the only form of wealth that ultimately can sustain a community or nation. And that means coming from the photosynthetic process through green plants growing on regenerating soil. So we, we, if we're taking management in agriculture, we've got to make damn sure we're switching back to a solar dollar, not a mineral dollar or a paper dollar. Now, it doesn't make the dollars bad or not. We just have to look at what the source is and how this action is treating it. And then we go on with others. I won't go through them all, but each of them, it's what do you think, what do you think, what do you think, as you're checking a decision. And you only do this when you're in doubt. Intuitively, people begin to make decisions much better. But if they're in doubt, you go through this checking process. And then it's what do you think, what do you think, what do you think on six of them. And then the final one is where you actually make the decision. 
and you don't make the final decision on what you think. The final decision is made on what you feel. Because you're, you're not, at the end of the day, when you're dealing with complexity, uh, after you've thought about all this stuff in your head, you'll have a gut feel of whether it's right or wrong. Alan, there have been, uh, at least my understanding, there have been Rangeland scientists have been critical about you know, the success you've had. You know, you, you've demonstrated you know, success, you know, at least in regenerating land in, in a number of cases. And they said they've tried to implement your strategies and were unsuccessful doing so. And it sounds like you know, you're, it's, very it's very complex is what you're talking about. And it, it requires a, a new way of thinking rather than just a plan. You know, there's not a one size fits all, you know, Alan Savory, you know, you can, you can apply this to every ranch in the country, uh, you know, cookie cutter type of uh, program. You know, like I said, there's somebody in, you know, Northern Montana that's going to have a different climate and different temperature range and different type of, you know, different type of cow than they, there would be somebody in South Texas, for instance. Can you talk a little bit about why, why you think that these rangeland scientists have said what you're saying is, is not, you know, accurate or, or, or respond to your critics in that regard? Well, I, I wish I had critics. I, I go, I'm desperate to get critics. Um, when we did the training of 2,000 people that I mentioned over two years, I spent an hour, the first hour of every day after the first day in their week, and these were people with PhDs and goodness knows what from all the main government agencies, universities in agriculture, World Bank, etc. And we spent an hour at the start of every day saying, look, anything that's worrying you, anything in the logic or the science that's worrying you, trying to find the flaws uh, in the process, because we can't afford to be wrong uh, again. We just can't afford to be. And that helped enormously in the early days, refine it, what people couldn't understand or flaws they found. And then towards the end, we were I, I was to try and make it more meaningful and try to get criticism, I was even offering a thousand pound prize. So if anybody could find a flaw in the process or something wrong in the science, then there would be a thousand dollar prize and nobody got the prize. So we've done our best to, to find the critics. These people that you cite, this is paradigm paralysis. They've never studied what I'm saying. Uh, some of them like David Brisky, professor at Texas A&M, He's been cited a lot. He's never even read my book. He cites it, but it's obvious he didn't read it or he doesn't understand it. He's made no study at all of my work, and yet he's quoted widely because he's a professor. Now, he's been rebutted and rebutted even by one of his own authors, Dr. Teague, who's also a Texas A&M. He's rebutted it, and he's one of the own authors. But with social media, people just keep cycling this stuff. There's a woman at Oxford who's done the same, made no study at all and come out criticizing it. And then there's a lovely example of eight authors. I don't remember all their names now, but they published a book on uh, mule deer habitat in Texas. And they cite 19 peer-reviewed papers critical of holistic management. Now, a fellow called Chris Gill, and you can ring Chris Gill, you could talk to Chris and follow up. He's just got a good liberal arts education. I had visited him, seen his ranch, got him started. He's done it himself. He's managing holistically. He's seen the improvement of habitat for all his wildlife. So he got quite angry when he read that book. And so he read 
apparently all 19 citations, papers, and then he read every author that those authors cited, and he read every author that those ones cited. He followed all of them back to source, and not a single one had made any attempt to study what I'm talking about. They all studied rotational or mob or some grazing system. If they'd read my book, I was critical of those half a century ago. None of them look at holistic planned grazing process because they don't understand it. And that is nothing blocking them except what they know and what they call paradigm paralysis or their egos. Because illiterate people learn it quickly. I had a school leaver once in Africa and uh, exactly one and a half hours I trained him how to do holistic planned grazing and he did a beautiful job for the ranch he was managing. That's one and a half hours a school leaver can learn it. I've had people with PhDs come through a training two or three times and they cannot grasp it. They're not stupid, it's paradigm paralysis. The finest candle makers in the world couldn't even dream of electric lights. They couldn't have developed electric lights. And when electric lights came on, they couldn't understand it and they would have been angry. The finest horse and cart makers in the world couldn't dream of motor cars. They couldn't have developed motor cars. And when motor cars came along, they resented it like anything. We're just looking at the same old problem. So Alan, is this somewhat of a situation then where you almost would need to bypass those folks and go straight to the farmer themselves and work from the ground up, so to speak? That's what we do, Zach, is just bypass them. We've been bypassing them for years, but they uh, influence enormously because of social networking. They keep throwing uh, doubts on it. And that is one of what we call the wicked problems why our institutions cannot change. So, you know, I'm being critical here of these institutions, universities, range science organization, etc. I'm not being critical of any human in them. They, they, they are not to blame. Even people like David Brisky, whom I mentioned just now, and if I'd named these eight authors, if I could remember their names, they're not actually to blame at all. This is normal behavior. If you read Thomas Kuhn, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, if you see what's happened throughout history, when a new counterintuitive idea emerges, it is automatic that institutions uh, resist and ridicule it. And in fact, if you look at the fellow who um, realized that if he washed his hands after cutting up corpses, he'd save thousands of women's lives, uh, Ignaz Semmelweis, the Hungarian doctor, he died in a mental asylum. He was so persecuted by the experts of the day. And as I jokingly say, thank God I was already mad 50 years ago. So I've survived this by just going to ordinary people. Now, you must bear in mind that I didn't develop anything on my own. I stood on the shoulders of Smuts, his theory, Wazan's work, and others who'd battled, Leopold, all of whom were battling with the same problem. All right, and I had hundreds and hundreds of farmers, ranchers, pastorists, and people in universities helping me. But they couldn't change their institutions. Now, these few in institutions that keep throwing smokescreen up 
and don't understand the work are doing nothing but damage. They're making fools of themselves and doing damage, and we've got to get beyond it. That's why the TED Talk, all right, in 20 minutes, by getting to the public, that over 5 million people have seen it, more than 2,500 view it every day, all right, that in 20 minutes did more than 50 years of me and hundreds of people helping me fighting academic egos and paradigm paralysis. Yeah, I mean, that's a very, uh, you know, important point, Alan, and that we have this tool now via social media to reach the masses in a way that we never could before. And, and this program will, will, will get, you know, 10,000 more, or at least yeah. hopefully more. Uh, but what, what do we have to do? I mean, you know, obviously it's not some, you know, the holistic system is something people do, but how do we, how do we change the narrative? What, what has to happen to, to effectively allow this process to actually happen with all the, you know, the ranchers, you know, that are, that are out in the world? How, how's it going to happen? Or what, what, what do we, what well, can we do? I, I actually put out a blog recently summing all that up for young people, because you're seeing, young activists now rebelling against school, uh, Greta Thunberg uh, speaking up at the UN, etc. Now these young activists, I'm right behind them. They've got to get active because their future is so grim if they don't, all right? But they're very like cars, uh, uh, dogs that chase a motor car. Have you, I'm sure you've seen lots of dogs chasing cars. Have you ever seen a dog know what to do with a car if it catches it? <laughs> Okay, Greta Thunberg and all these young activists are going to be the same. They are not aware of what is causing global desertification and climate change. That's what they're rebelling against. So they're rebelling and supporting the vegan movement, demanding that politicians take action, etc. No politician can take action. No institution can lead. So I put out a blog explaining that. And the only people who can lead are people like yourself. That's why I'm talking on this interview. This is why I went out of my way to try and do it and will with anyone, the freelance writers, the people that get knowledge to the public, because all the research shows that one of the wicked problems, as they call it, meaning almost impossible to solve, is that when new paradigm shifting knowledge emerges, institutions through which we develop all policy through which we combat things like climate change. We can't do it as individual. We have to do it through our institutions. But the research and history show us that no matter how dangerous the situation, no matter how many facts and how much evidence you produce, no matter how many trillions of dollars are wasted, no matter how many humans alive, uh, lives are lost, institutions simply cannot adopt new paradigm shifting views ahead of the public. I cannot find a single case in history where people have institutions haven't behaved as they did in Galileo's or Semmelweis's case or my own case. Look, cattlemen's organizations and environmental organizations should have been the first to leap on the bandwagon and support holistic management half a century ago almost. Not a single cattleman's organization has yet supported me. Thousands of ranchers have. You see, their organizations oppose. Now, only when enough people say management needs to be holistic, 
cannot continue to be a reductionist? Will it be safe for our institutions to change? And the public that needs to say that includes the people employed in institutions. Because even though you or I might be in a university, we are still a human being with a family and we still have a private view. And so when enough people, just as humans, are saying, this makes sense, we need to apply science and common sense and manage complexity, then it will change. Because the people in our institutions are good people. They're wonderful people. It's, it's a problem of complexity, well understood in wicked problems. Now, there are two other wicked problems that are affecting us, and I think we will solve them when management becomes holistic. This first one, we won't. Only people like yourself getting the knowledge out to the public till the public shifts will do it. And it's getting close to that. We already have the first university managed and led hub in our global network of holistic management hubs, where just ordinary people are coming together to manage holistically and show what can be done. So we've got that in Michigan, but it's interesting. The conflict has now gone within the university. They're now not in conflict with me. The conflict is internal, but that's great. Other organizations are beginning to change. So when change occurs, I think it'll be rapid. Now, there are two other wicked problems that, again, nobody's to blame for these, but one is you can put the most brilliant people, you and I and whoever we like, in organizations, but because they do not behave like a human being does, all right, what happens is what commonly emerges lacks common sense. It's stupid. So you can ask anybody in America, for instance, does it make sense for America to, to produce oil to produce uh, corn, to produce fertilizing corn, to produce fuel. And everybody says that that's stupid. And yet look at all the institutions that support it. Can you name any institution fighting it? You see, it's, it's absolutely stupid. Now, you, once you're aware of that, you'll see action after action. I mean, I mentioned earlier, we spend a billion dollars a year trying to kill noxious weeds and we haven't succeeded in a single state. We just keep doing it. Isn't that stupid? You see, and nobody's being bad. Now, the, there's another problem that's, that's uh, difficult. You don't um, criticize uh, the institutions. I mean, you can just point out wicked problems, but if you go and criticize the institutions, it's very rare for any organization to say, sorry, we screwed up, we were wrong, like I did in the TED Talk. You won't get an organization doing that, all right? Uh, what they do is if they feel criticized or they are criticized or they've done something wrong, is they tend to circle the wagons and protect the organization, even if it means going completely against their mission. And of course, the classic example of that is the Catholic Church and pedophile priests. They've known about them for centuries, only now because of social networking and, and so on and so forth, has it become so widely known publicly that they're beginning to slap them mildly on the wrist. But they went right against their very mission to protect the innocent, the children. Now, the Catholic Church is full of wonderful people. Wonderful people. You see, it's, it's because these three wicked problems are simply because organizations are complex. Alan, do you think that we currently 
are at a critical juncture. I mean, I know you've been looking at this stuff for decades now, and now we're seeing such an outcry by, you know, vegan activists and now some politicians saying that cattle are destroying the planet and we've got to do something. Do you think you can, this can be leveraged to move us towards a more holistic style? Uh, Are we at a point where we have to make a decision in the, in in the, in the coming time where it's going to either, we're either going to throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say, we're going to go, we're going to, we're going to replace all our cows with synthetic lab meat and save the world that way, or are we going to be able to, to, to have a real, real meaningful discussion and maybe move the needle towards something that, that you see as more effective? Well, if we don't move the needle, God help us. Because plastic meat, artificial meat, it's, it's just another stupidity, absolutely stupid. Um, Rain science is beliefs, it's not science. Uh, we, we're heading in the wrong direction. And yes, you're right, it's coming to a head and nothing shows it perhaps better than young people beginning to revolt, um, which is, I think, our, our really big hope. So yes, we do need to change. Now, how you get uh, new views out is the difficulty. TED Talk, TED uh, have been criticized for even allowing me to talk by vegans and academics. Uh, I was banned from setting foot on any university uh, campus in Southern Africa for over 20 years. So when you've got your authorities trying to block information and the media are an institution, they're not doing any good investigative reporting, the media are just parroting the same stuff about vegan diets, the celebrities, hundreds of celebrities are putting their wealth and fame behind being vegans, uh, DiCaprio and, uh, and uh, what's the name, uh, Microsoft? Uh, Bill Gates. Uh, Bill Gates. You see, all these people are putting their uh, backing behind this incredible ecological ignorance that's out there. And there's no way that uh, you can get views like I'm expressing out to the public we made amazing progress in the 1980s when I mentioned the US government, USDA, uh, commissioned me to put 2,000 people through training over two years. The plan was if the, there was a demand, we would form an American government training center on holistic management, and I would return to my country because I was over here as a political exile. Well, we ran that for 2,000 years. And then um, what happened was all future training was banned. Institutionally, you see, we didn't know about these institutional problems. We do now. So trying to look constructively of what we can do is all we can do is what you guys are doing. Try to get the knowledge out. Now, if, if, if when banks collapse or whatever, you get billions poured in, you'll get congressional testimony, because people can understand that. But if you could get congressional testimony and get somebody like me before Congress testifying and then other scientists testifying, that'd be wonderful. But how do you do that? I don't have the bandwidth of these celebrities. A celebrity's only got to blow his nose and millions of people know about it on tweets. I can put out a terribly serious thing, but it's too long for tweets. People, are, they've got a short attention span. So it's, it's really a problem for you guys 
who deal with getting knowledge out to the public. What are you going to do? People like me are not the leaders. People like me can come up with the ideas, develop a concept, but the people who get that concept to the public are the freelance writers, the people like um, uh, Judy Schultz, who's gotten so well, and uh, Gretel Ehrlich, who's written, and others. You know, it's the freelance writers uh, and the artists. These are the people who get the knowledge out. And the guys like yourself who do podcasts and things. So my question really is, what are you going to do to get this sort of knowledge to the Greta Thunbergs of this world? I've tried to get the knowledge to her. People in Sweden have tried. We don't even get an acknowledgement. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's uh, it's oftentimes the the biggest voice, not necessarily the the wisest voice that gets heard. And um, you know, one other thing that I kind of think of with this stuff is. Uh, you know, it seems like a lot of times people are going to respond or some of these institutions are going to respond when they see the needle moved on profits. So if a listener is sitting here thinking, you know, how do I vote with my dollar towards holistic management? Is there a good way for them to, to do oh, yeah. Where should they be looking and what should they be doing in order to identify, like, I'm buying this from a holistic setup, therefore promoting other ranchers to see uh, an avenue in which they can make a profit doing it this way instead of the traditional way? There's a lot they can do. They can go to the website of Savory Institute, Daniela Howell, who's leading it, and the team there, and they're collaborating with many people and, and other organizations in the regenerative agriculture uh, movement and trying to get people to vote with their dollars, as you say, through food, good nutritionist food. There are a lot of people in the food and fitness area who are doing sterling work and supporting uh, the idea of the world turning to holistic management. So a lot can be done. And what Daniela and, and the people she's leading are doing is they're coming up with EOV, environmental um, uh, valuations, so that, that they can actually establish that this food or this product could be a leather handbag or food or whatever actually came from land that is truly regenerating the soil. And we don't care what the practice was. We've proven by measurement, etc., that this product is not greenwashing. It's genuinely improving the, the environment and the community and, and everything. So there are things like that. There's the uh, L2M program, Land to Market, with similar idea um, that uh, they can get involved in. There's a lot they can do and should do. But the most important thing is just to talk to other people and keep spreading the word. I was once faced with a, a, a general election when I was president of a political party in my own country, and I literally was faced with a general election and I had a total of $35,000 in the party's bank balance. And I didn't know what to do against government control of television, radio, judges, all the instruments of government was in the hands of the racist uh, Smith government. And I got some of the bright young people from the captains of industry who worked in all of our main industries, got them to meet with me. And I said, look, you fellows, I've got to face a general election with almost no funds. How do I do that? What is, I want your advice. What's the most effective thing I could do I want you to go away and think of it and advise me. And they said, Alan, we don't even need to go away. We can tell you right now. And I said, what's that? They said, word of mouth. 
just talk to two people and they talk to two people and they talk to two people. Nothing in the world beats that. If you guys can get that going with young people, we will save the world. That's a wonderful message. I wonder what just, what do you think is the, why is there opposition to, to wanting to do something like this? Is there, is there, is it finance? Is it, is it just ingrained beliefs? What, what is the, what is the biggest challenge or hurdle you have to, you know, is it just simple greed or what, what's going on that prevents us from, from achieving this? No, it's, it's not greed. You've only got to look at national parks with some of the national parks is appalling degradation of land contributing to climate change. I put out a blog about that. You can't blame greed. If you look at every single case, you just come back to, to management time and time again, if you peel the onion. And when you say, why is it we don't change, etc.? With the institutions, it's this paradigm paralysis that's been well studied and understood. With most of us, it's just because we're human. And I mean, I'm like that too. And you are, look at it this way. We know with reasonable certainty that if you want to live longer and healthier life, you've only got to eat less and exercise more. Now, everybody knows that they make wonderful resolutions at the end of the year. There's a multi-billion dollar industry in running shoes and exercise machines. How many people do it? That's the problem. Yeah, I mean, there's a, again, that's a, that's a controversial topic as well. And I think, you know, some of the parallels you've drawn about, uh, you know, solving these problems and looking at this rather than treating symptoms versus actual problems, uh, I see that those parallels all the time in, in, in my field of medicine. You know, I think it's, it's been, you know, that's, that, that lines perfectly with what you've been saying about that stuff. Um, you know, Zach, I, this has been wonderful. I've been really enjoyed listening and, and learning from you, Alan. What, is there anything else we need to know that you, that you want us to, 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 to talk about? You know, I, I think we've covered a lot, um, and I can't think of more. Uh, you know, I've stuck my neck out. I've made some very controversial and so on statements. I, I know that. And I would just plead with you to try and get the word out and try and chop my neck off. I've stuck it a long way out. Uh, it's not about me. It's, it's about saving civilization as we know it. And if I'm wrong, I need to be destroyed. So we need some scientists to criticize my work. And you might be able to bring that about. Years ago, one of the guys who didn't react in an adverse way was Jim Teer, uh, Dr. Jim Teer. He was also at Texas A&M. And I didn't know Jim well. I knew him by repute, a wonderful guy with a tremendous reputation in range and wildlife. And he and I were out on the land together. This is about 40 years ago. And he said to me, a strange thing. He said, Alan, either you are wrong and we won't be able to dig a hole deep enough to bury you in, or you are right and the world will not be able to build a monument high enough. And I said, Jim, it's not about me. It's about saving civilization, etc. And I said, what do you think? And he said, I'm sitting on the fence. Well, he died sitting on the fence. Too many people are sitting on the fence. We need to dig that bloody hole and bury me or jump around and start saving the world. Alan, at some point, you know, you're going to have to pass the torch on to someone else. 
I would assume. Is there somebody else out there now that, that you think gets it, like, you know, that, that, that understands this process, someone else we can, we can continue to look to as years go by? Yes, and I'm in the departure lounge. And fortunately, uh, I didn't form the Savory Institute. Younger people did that, and they're led by Daniela Hall, whom I mentioned, and her team. And they're a wonderful group, incredibly motivated and knowledgeable. And they're focusing on the grasslands of the world mainly as the low-lying fruit and tackle. And I'm tending to try and see if I can get policies to change somewhere. Um, so in answer to your question, no, there, there are thousands of younger people that are getting involved. We've got 40 hubs locally led and managed hubs around the world. And they're doing incredible work and getting more and more knowledgeable. I mentioned to you the first university-led hub. So there are a lot of people. Now, there, there isn't going to ever be another me because the type of people that you needed to learn to fly are not the sort of people that you would have flying an airliner today or anything or running a, an airline business. So the sort of people like me need to die out, and I will shortly. Now, other people have to take it from there. And don't ever try and replace me, because you won't. Yeah, just, just, you know, hopefully we can get some of those folks on as well to kind of further this message. And, you know, because everybody's going to have a little bit more information out there. Because I think, you know, I, you know, I find that the attention span of the masses tends to be short, and they have to be continually reminded of stuff. You know, they, they remember something for a short period of time, and the next exciting news story breaks, and then they all forget about it. And they they they... they, they they just depart. So we need to keep getting more and more people out there that can get this message out. Yeah, and aren't I like that when I screwed up today on this interview, even though I had it in my calendar? <laughs> just describing us humans. Yeah, we need it reminding and reminding and reminding. We are human. No doubt. And there's certainly a lot more information coming at people these days. So it is one of those things where I think like if it comes at you once, you probably miss it. So Kind of re-beating re, re the drum over and over again is definitely uh, something I think that is necessary. But, um, Alan, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. If you ever want to come back on and talk about anything else, you're more than welcome to to hop on with us and, and share your message. Uh, I know our listeners are going to take a lot away from this one. And if there's any spots that you would like them to head to check out more about you, um, feel free to share that. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes as well. Um, including your website at savory.global. Yeah, that's all you need. And contact people there. Forget about me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, and for the listeners, too, that are curious, if you do go to the website, it is pretty easy to navigate towards some of those uh, businesses that have been uh, more or less approved with the holistic management. So if you are curious about where to get some of that stuff, the information is there. Uh, well, otherwise, uh, thank you so much for coming on, Alan. Well, thank you. Thank you, you guys. Alan, Alan, what's your what's your favorite cut of meat? Just, uh, just <laughs> uh, I'm a carnivore. I eat my whole family are, and my favorite is just built on being typical. You would understand that from Africa. Yeah, the built yeah, is yeah. wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, on, yeah it's good. And they they make it good down there. That's for sure. Okay, Alan, thank you so much. Enjoy your time back in Zimbabwe, and we look thank forward you. to hearing more from from you guys in your institute. Okay. And uh, let me know where this goes and where it is and uh, how you go. And if you want anybody else, just contact the Savory Institute and Daniela. There's, there's plenty of people. Wonderful. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you, guys.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.